All right. Well, good morning. If, if you would take your Bibles again and go back to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, just a few chapters back to chapter 16. And we're going to read from chapter 16, and we're also going to read from Mark chapter 8. These are parallel passages, and there's a parallel also in Luke chapter 9. We won't read that, but uh, Matthew fills in some details, and Mark gives us some helpful context for our passage this morning. Matthew chapter 16, and we'll jump in at verse 13 and follow along as I read. When Jesus came into the regions of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then if you'd turn over to Mark chapter 8, we'll read the parallel and a little further. Beginning at verse 27, Mark chapter 8. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no man about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. We'll pause there. Let's go to our... God, once again in prayer before we look into this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a, a scripture that you've given to us, Lord God, the scriptures even translated into our own tongue that we might read them openly, freely, and joyfully. Oh, Heavenly Father, no small thing. You have not left us without the guidance of your word for which we give you praise. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray now come as it were, uh, remember these days when you walked among your disciples and revisit us and bring to our hearts and our consciences the things you were teaching them there in those days. Bring it with a freshness and a liveliness that we might taste and see that the Lord is good and your promises are rich and blessed, that we might be searched with your word, that we might be laid bare before your all-seeing eye, that all things are naked and open to you. We know this and confess it to be true. So lay our hearts bare before you. Instruct us and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you drive around this city at least, if not many others, you might see vehicles with the bumper sticker, Question Authority. A little less popular is the bumper sticker that says simply, Question Everything. And if you haven't seen one lately, maybe you need to drive over to the University of Minnesota and uh, drive through a couple parking lots there. Questioning can be a good thing. It can probe and distinguish, di differentiate and dissect both ideas and thoughts, as well as motives and actions, all in an effort to arrive at the truth. Questioning can be a good thing. Questioning is used in all sorts of investigations, parental investigations. Who started this fight? Who put the gum in Susie's hair? All kinds of questions can be asked to try to get at the truth and a resolution of those matters. Police interrogations, criminal investigations, accident investigations, all involve detailed questioning and ongoing further deepening questioning things. Congressional investigations. How did the COVID relief money get spent anyway? Who leaked the memo from the Supreme Court? Whose bag of cocaine was found in the White House? There's all kinds of questions we could ask and that Congress would have a duty to pursue. Courts of law make pointed use of questioning. First of all, testing potential jurors, testing their readiness to stand in and stand in judgment in such a case and then examining and cross-examining of witnesses in detail, question following upon question, question after question. A large part of schooling, of education, is testing knowledge and comprehension by the use of questioning, by the use of questions. Questioning, then, can be a good and a useful and helpful tool, but even in this, the Bible does not leave us without guide rails and warnings as to the potential abuse of such a tool. You'll remember back in the book of Numbers about Dathan and Korah and Abiram and their company, their ilk, as it were, who not only questioned what Moses was doing and some of the decisions he was making, but he questioned whether he had the authority at all he and Aaron to act the way that they were in this place of authority and power. And they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Their questioning of authority in this case was out of place. And God demonstrated his displeasure with their rebellion and their questioning of Moses and Aaron by opening up the, the ground. And they fell in and were crunched inside the earth, such an earthquake has swallowed them up alive, as the scripture says. So they were not simply questioning Moses' wisdom and his decisions and some details of his action, but they're right. Moses and Aaron had been appointed directly by God to serve in the capacity that God had given them, and because they rebelled against this and questioned that, God brought on them this astounding judgment. As to the bumper sticker, question everything, the Bible checks and restrains us in this matter as well. 
Paul writes to Timothy, we read in 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Or as the ESV has it, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Or as one translation has it, they breed battles. Battles inside the Church of Christ when we go down rabbit trails of foolish and unlearned, unwise controversies and questions. So there is a limit to questioning. And there is a restraint on questioning authority as well. So while most questioning is good, there are limits. And there are questions that are turned to a sinister and evil purpose. The first question ever asked in the Bible, the devil speaking by the serpent, that subtle, undermining, gravely consequential question was this, has God really said? Did God really say you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He asked this question of Eve, a subtle question, but it undermined God's truthful and rightful authority. It was an evil question in that regard. The first question in the Bible was turned to an evil purpose and the consequences we live with until this day. The first question asked by God in the Bible is a question that should haunt every lost sinner. Every lost sinner born and trespasses in sin, every son and daughter of Adam. Adam, where art thou? Adam, where art thou? After Adam had taken of the fruit, after they had fallen from grace, fallen from God's care, and fallen away and rebelled and sinned against God, Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves when they heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day about them. And God asked this question, where are you? Where are you? God wasn't ignorant of where they were. The question had a purpose to, for Adam to see that now he was lost and cut off from the life of God. And that is the state of all of us by nature. We are born in trespasses and sins. We are born estranged from the living God. And we only go further away as we live our lives in sin. Well, this brings us nearer to our subject. There is one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek and to save that which is lost. To not simply ask Adam where you are, but to make a way of reconciliation that he might be reconciled to God. The lost and fallen sons and daughters of Adam can be reconciled through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the days of his earthly ministry, made wise and judicious use of questions, questions that extend down the centuries even to us, questions that still need to be asked, questions that still need to be answered by us. And we want to look at two of them today, two of those questions. Two questions that are coupled together under these two headings. First of all, who do men say that I am? A sweeping, surveying, summarizing question that he puts to his disciples. And then secondly, who do you say that I am? A pointed, personal, probing question that he directs to his followers, his disciples as well. 
So first of all, he asks, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And before we come to the answer to this question, notice a few things with me in the context and questioning. We'll look at the context of the question, the content of the question, the identity of those questioned, and the reason for the question. What was the context or circumstances of this question? One of the greatest miracles done by our Lord in his earthly ministry was the feeding of the 5,000. All four Gospels record this great event. It proves to be a watershed issue in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The response to this miracle begins to separate the men from the boys, so to speak, the true disciples and the hangers-on who were just around for those things that they could get to satisfy their flesh. This becomes a watershed issue in what follows after. Now this question in our passage follows soon after that miracle. Luke, in his recording, records it almost immediately after that. Mark and Matthew fill in the chronology with a few other events that took place in between, but all in those regions and in Jesus' season of ministry there up in Galilee. Even the feeding of the 4,000 is, is put in there as well. Well, while Jesus was still ministering there and about Galilee, we read that he withdrew himself quite a ways north into the regions of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I always test my girls' biblical geography, and they generally fail. And when you come to a question like, where in the world is Caesarea Philippi? Well, if you can remember with me the region of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, it was north even of that. And it bordered on Syrian lands and bordered on kind of the outskirts of Israelites living and settling region. So why was Jesus up there? We don't know. He went about the towns and villages. Perhaps it was to withdraw for a while to instruct his disciples. Luke records this significant fact that Jesus was alone praying. Jesus was alone praying just preceding this interaction with his disciples and these two questions that he asked them of. Momentous milestones follow after these seasons of prayer that are recorded for us in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that after the 40 days of fasting and praying in the wilderness, Jesus begins his public preaching and the calling of his disciples that begins after that intense season out in the wilderness tested by the devil tempted by the devil and he out praying and when he comes back he launches into his public preaching that the kingdom of god was now at hand and then he calls his disciples about him after another season of prayer he leaves judea and begins his galilean ministry after another season of prayer and after that night of wrestling and prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, he goes to face his arrest, his trial, his sufferings, his crucifixion, and his death and burial. So after that season, may this cup pass from me. But he knows he must drink it to the dregs. And he goes forth and is arrested there in the garden. So preceding all these events in his life, Jesus is found 
praying. And the Bible records it for us. I'm sure there were multiple multitude of times when Jesus was praying, but these are recorded for us, for us to see that before great happenings in his life, Jesus was found praying and seeking the Lord. May we take away a lesson from that as well. So what does Jesus' praying at this juncture in the gospel portend or indicate for us? It will become clear as you read on in the passage, for then does Jesus begin, then does Jesus begin to tell his disciples the full scope of his mission, the full scope of his reason for coming, that he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to, be, he's going to suffer, be crucified, and buried. It was only after this season that he begins to show his disciples what is ahead. All these questions then are in preparation for that revelation, are in preparation for that revelation to establish and firm up the disciples in their understanding in faith. They've been following him for a while. Do they have a clear picture and understanding of who he is? And Jesus wants to probe that, question that, test that, settle that in their minds before he goes into this last great season of his earthly ministry that's going to be characterized by the sufferings that await. Well then, what about the content of the question? The content of this first question, who do men say that I am? Matthew has it, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus, in including the phrase, the Son of Man, emphasizes and punctuates his humanity. He is flesh and blood like them, like his disciples. He is a man. Note with me also, though, in Mark 8, uh, verse 31, if you're still there. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice in describing this how he refers to himself in the third person. The Son of Man must go through these things. The Son of Man must suffer these things. Who is this Son of Man? Here he indicates there's something more than just his humanity. There is a title here, something beyond that. He is not only just a man, a son of Adam, of flesh and blood, of like passions with his disciples, but much more, he is there as the second Adam, the representative, the son of man par excellence. He is representing all the elect of God in that capacity as the son of man. And he underscores that, and he underscores that language for him. And then when he asks the question, what are men saying about the Son of Man? What are they saying about me? So Jesus begins here uh, to tell them uh, and relate to them in this way by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Well, thirdly, notice in this first question the identity of those he questions, not the crowds. He doesn't put this question to the crowds, not the Samaritans, not the Syrophoenicians or the Gentiles and Syrians, where he was right there in that region, not the Romans, 
who would have had quite a presence there in Caesarea Philippi, he puts this question to his own disciples, his own disciples who had been following with them. Well, that leads us in the fourth place. Why? What is the reason for this question? Why is Jesus asking his disciples this question and at this time? Well, Jesus' reason or reasons are not stated explicitly, but there are some inferences that we can draw from the context. First of all, Jesus wasn't asking because he didn't know the answer. Jesus wasn't asking this question because he didn't know what people thought of them, thought of him, and were saying about him. He knew full well, but he wanted to draw that out of the disciples. He wanted to get the disciples to start thinking about this. Why are these saying these things? Why are they thinking in this, these ways about me? All in preparation to ask that next question. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus was not asking because he was looking for accolades. He wasn't looking for flattering comments. Oh, Jesus, the crowds think you're wonderful. You're, you're like Elijah. You're like one of the great prophets. Jesus wasn't looking for accolades in asking this question. He is the sinless son of God. He has no pride that he's trying to stroke in asking that question. He's trying to draw out of his disciples a correct and right understanding for them to think through how it is that one on the one hand, the crowds and the men about him have missed altogether who he really is and why they might go down these other rabbit trails speculating about who he might be. No doubt Jesus was asking in part at least, to draw out of the breasts of his disciples a clear grasp of who he is, as distinguished from the popular and prevailing notions of the multitudes about them, to have this matter of faith settled in their hearts before he speaks to them of his sufferings, death, that he is about to face. Well, what then do the disciples answer Jesus? What is their response to Jesus in this question? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What is their response? First of all, they say, some say, you're John the Baptist. Now, you'll remember John the Baptist was the forerunner, the preceder of Jesus. He had gone preaching the kingdom of God, preparing the way so that when he comes, it would be clear that he who comes after him is greater than him whose shoe latchets he is not worthy to unloose. He is to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Herod, you'll remember, for Herodias' sake, had John the Baptist beheaded. And it troubled him, and it troubled him, no doubt, and Herod himself, when he heard about Jesus, believed that this was indeed John the Baptist, raised from the dead, and God's given him this power to do these mighty miracles. He didn't do any miracles during his earthly ministry before I took off his head, but now God's raised him up, and he's doing these mighty signs, and no doubt Herod was troubled by these things. Now, this notion might have come from Herod and spread to others, or others might have come to the same conclusion on their own. But whatever it was, a number of the people believed this was John the Baptist. That's who you are. And, of course, we know that's incorrect. Others said it was Elijah. Why Elijah? 
Turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the last chapter, chapter 3, toward the very end of that chapter. I'm sorry, chapter 4. Jumping in at verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So some of the Jews had this understanding of the scriptures. Before he comes, he is going to send Elijah. He's going to send Elijah on this ministry of preparation to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, to turn them back before God's hand of judgment strikes the earth with a curse. So they had this expectation, Elijah will be coming first before the Christ comes, before the Messiah comes. So they had something in their uh, understanding that Elijah would be coming. So when Jesus came, some of them came to the conclusion, aha, this is Elijah. Without going into it in detail, I think Jesus sets the record straight that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he is the Elijah that was to come and fulfilled that work of ministry and preparation because now Christ indeed is come. The Lord Jesus Christ had come. So some said John the Baptist, some said he was Elijah, and some said Jeremiah. Only here in Matthew does he mention Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah, do you suppose? Well, we don't know the totality of the reason, but we can think of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah was very bold to preach about the destruction that was coming to the temple and the judgment that was coming upon Israel. And he was also known as the weeping prophet because he wept in sorrow and grief when he saw uh, how Israel had turned completely away from the Lord, had hardened themselves in their sins. And Jesus, no doubt, bore some resemblance of that in his conduct, in his teaching, in his mannerisms. And so it was a natural conclusion for many of the people to say, this is Jeremiah. God is raised up. But we know that's not true either. And even though Elijah was taken in a whirlwind straight to heaven, and so there might be greater expectation that, aha, he's still in that bodily form and God will bring him back. We cannot say that of Jeremiah or of the other prophets. For then they said, or you're one of the other prophets. One of the other prophets. None of them are specifically mentioned. Notably, they don't say that he's Abraham or Moses. They don't say that he's Abraham or Moses. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Moses and Abraham were perhaps the two most highly regarded among the Jews and specifically among the Pharisees and even the Sadducees in those days. And they would argue with Jesus, we have Moses, we have Moses to teach us. Who are you to teach us? 
Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus responded, before Abraham was, I am, I existed. So Jesus would say that to them. But notice with me in Matthew 23, verse 29, Jesus calls them to account for their undue, unhealthy regard for the prophets. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, sorry, wrong chapter. 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So many of those prophets who called Israel to repent were not well received by Israel and in fact were persecuted and put to death. And he says, therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So the, those who thought that he's one of the old prophets had, a, had a too high of a regard for those prophets generally and didn't see those things for what they were, at least among the ruling class. Now there might have been among the people, for we read that the common people heard him gladly. And they said, this must be one of the old prophets. God has raised him up, returned him to us, even though they had persecuted him in the past. Here he was ministering among us. So there might have just been blind ignorance in looking to Jesus as one of these prophets. Well, let's extend that question to ourselves. Who do men say that I am? All these answers were the wrong answer. They were somewhat reasonable answers, but in the light of Jesus's ministry, in the light of all that he taught, they were errant answers, and they should have known by now something better. Well, let's extend the question to us. What do men in our day say about Jesus Christ? Who is he? What do they say? Many speak well of him, don't they? He was a great teacher. He taught us about love and fairness and kindness, but try to get these people to look further at what he taught or press the implications of his death and resurrection, and they grow increasingly uncomfortable. We don't want to go there. We don't want to think beyond the surface of things we've heard about Jesus, not what we've read and studied from the scriptures about the life and legacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. They just want to kind of have a surface, minimal understanding and say, yeah, he was a good teacher. We're not going to trash him. Jesus is just all right with me. They'll sing with the Doobie Brothers, but they'll have no real grasp or embrace of who he is. Others, many content themselves in being indifferent or agnostic to his claims upon them. They have no interest in trying to settle the matter in their own minds. They're content to go on and say, well, everybody argues about who he is. I'm never going to settle that question. I'm not even going to look into it. I'm happily agnostic about who Jesus is. And I'm just content to leave it that way. J.C. Ryle comments on, in this way, let it be remembered 
that talk and speculation about Christ and his gospel are one of Satan's great traps for the ruining of souls. Many a man cloaks his indolence and laziness about religion under a pretense of the variety of opinions and the difficulty of knowing who is right. Well, I, I, you know, everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. I can't understand it. I'm not going to try to settle that question. It's a trap of the devil to keep us from coming to Christ and settling that matter in our own souls. We can just say, I don't know what's right. So many have their own opinions. I will leave that to them. What about the Muslims? We have an increasing influx of Muslims. What's their understanding? What do they say? What do they think about Jesus Christ? Well, they believe Jesus Christ was a great prophet. They would even call him Al-Masih, the Messiah. They would even refer to him as such that he was born of a virgin, that he did miracles, multiple miracles. They would ascribe to him some miracles that we would not even have heard of or thought of, and perhaps are largely apocryphal. But he was rejected by the Jews, they acknowledge. But not that he was crucified. They do not believe he was crucified or that he was resurrected. But God rescued him and took him to heaven before the Jews could fulfill their plotting. They reject his being truly God and truly man in one. They believe, however, that he will return with the Mahdi. He will return with the Mahdi to reign for a short time upon the earth, a reign of righteousness that he will be alongside the great Mahdi when he comes. But they view him as merely a man and a great prophet, and that when he dies, he will be, be buried in that fourth tomb near to Muhammad in Medina because of his greatness, that he ranks among the greatest of the prophets. But beyond that, they will not go or confess or acknowledge. Many also in our day deny there is a God at all. Deny that there is a God at all. So any association of the historic figure of Jesus being associated with God, being one with God, being on a mission from God, doing miracles by God's power, being virgin-born, or being raised from the dead is all swept away by a proud, confident, atheistic hand. All that's rubbish. There is no God, and none of the rest of this is true either. That's a sad state of affairs, but there are perhaps more in our day of that persuasion and conviction than in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Paine uh, the patriot, we would say, in some ways, one of the founding fathers of our nation, nonetheless did much to malign the scriptures, much to malign the name of Jesus Christ and the true and the living God because he was atheistic, we might say, deistic, some would say, in his thoughts, in his reasonings, and in his writings. But when he came near his death, he said this, I would give worlds if I had them, that age of reason, the name of the book, had not been published. O oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. O oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. 
If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. What a sad commentary on a life that fought against God, kicked against the pricks, undermined the scriptures and their authority and their place. So what do men believe in our day? Many of the same things, do they not? And worse. Well, that brings us to our second question. Our second question, who do you say that I am? That's the great question each of us needs to answer. See this place, who do you, put your name there. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This question calls the disciples away from simply surveying the thoughts, speculations, and opinions of the crowd to grapple with this pointed personal probing question themselves. Who do I? Who do I, Peter? Who do I, Philip? Who do I, Matthew? Who do I, disciples, professing disciples of Jesus Christ, say that he is? Note that these disciples had followed Jesus for some time. But what had they observed? What had they learned? What convictions and conclusions had they come to about their master that they had followed and served? Were they content to speculate around the edge and periphery? Or would they now, would they now answer this question with certainty and conviction? With certainty and conviction. This is part of the reason Jesus presses this question on their conscience. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, before we come to Peter's answer, consider just a few of the claims that Jesus Christ has made upon their souls and has made upon our souls as well. Jesus said he existed before the creation of the world. Jesus had taught them that he existed before the creation of the world. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 17, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven. Jesus claimed that he preexisted his earthly time here that he had pre-existed the creation of the world itself, that he had been with the Father in glory before worlds were created. Secondly, Jesus had taught them that he had the power to give eternal life, that he had the power to give eternal life. In John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus alone has that power and authority to give eternal life. Thirdly, Jesus had taught his disciples that he himself was God. Distinct from the Father as a person, but completely one with him, the true and the living God. He had said, I and my Father are one. In John 5, 23, he said, Men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The same level of honor should be given to the Son of God as to God the Father himself, because he is very God of very God. That familiar passage in John 14, 
we read, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. That's all we're looking for. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever sees me has seen the Father. Whoever sees me has seen the Father also. And unlike Paul and Barnabas, when they were among the Lyconians in the book of Acts, and the Lyconians sought to worship Paul and Barnabas, and they had to stop them and say, no, no, we're just men. We've come to tell you to turn from these things. And unlike the angel, when John tried to worship the angel, and the angel said, stand up on your feet. I am a servant of God as well. When Jesus was worshiped by his disciples, he does not reject that worship because he is very God, a very God. If he were but a man, he could not but reject that worship and say, no, 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 I'm but a messenger. But he does not. When they were in the boat, they bowed down and worshiped him. When Thomas finally saw and came to the realization that Jesus was alive and resurrected, he cried out, what? My Lord and my God, with no word of rebuke from Jesus. He welcomed that confession. He welcomed that worship, not because he was grandiose and was looking for worship and praise, but because he couldn't deny who he truly was. Very God of very God and very man of very man in one person. Furthermore, Jesus taught that he would return and raise the dead, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. How then do the disciples answer? How then do the disciples answer this question? Who do you say that I am? Peter, some would argue, Peter speaking for all of them as their spokesman, is always the first to give answer, right? He's the first one when there's a pop quiz to give the answer. Peter might be answering for all of them, but he's certainly answering for himself when he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer, Peter. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who's come to redeem his people. He is the one who is God and man in one come among them. So he gives the right and correct answer. Some of you will be familiar with the argumentation of C.S. Lewis. That when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to think about him in one of three ways. Either he's a liar, and he's lying about all these claims to be God, to have existed before the worlds are created, to have the power to give eternal life, to raise the dead, and all the rest. Either he's lying about all those things, or he's just plain mad. He's a lunatic. He's crazy. And he's just saying these things on the side of his mouth. He was a nice guy, but he was a little off his rocker. So we either have to say he's that or that, or that he is indeed what he says, that he is the Lord and God of all creation. C.S. Lewis sums up his argument this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, 
but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a man, madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He wasn't that leaving that option open to his disciples when he asked them, who do you say that I am? And it's not open to us here today either in saying, who do you say that I am? Well, what does, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'm skipping over some stuff for the sake of time. So after Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, after we have seen that there's no other conclusion to come to or to make, that the claims of Christ are clearly set before us, that these disciples, having walked with Jesus this long, should and could come to no other conclusion if they're honest and truthful men, after every objection has been taken away and answered. Jesus emphasizes this. He says, verse 17 of Matthew 16, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. At the end of the day, our eyes will not be open. Our ears will not be unstopped. Faith will not be generated in our hearts, except God the Father, with and by the Holy Spirit, will open our eyes and open our hearts and give us faith to believe. We could witness Jesus' life all our days. We could read the scriptures every day and not come to that unless, unless God is pleased to open our eyes and open our hearts. What can we do now? Open my eyes, O Lord, to see these things. Open them that I might see indeed that you are all that you claim to be, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read this in verse 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. If you have the Spirit of God, there's no way you can ultimately call Jesus accursed and curse him. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Only by the Holy Spirit working in us, working in our hearts, will that good confession like Peter's come forth from our lips. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You alone are my Lord and my God, as Thomas cried out. Well, what does that teach us? What does that teach us in the end? 
If you're here today and you can't make that good confession, it sounds kind of good in your ear, it's pricked your conscience, but, but it doesn't come out of your heart. It doesn't flow from your lips. Cry out to the living God. Give me a heart to believe. Give me faith to embrace Jesus Christ. Give me lips that will confess him for who he is. May God grant that to every one of you. And then lastly, to those who have walked with Christ a while, those in the church, is there no lesson for us? Oh, we can say, yes, we've made that good confession. Are we settled on our lease? Are we comfortable in that? Have we become encrusted in an old faith? Oh, may God invigorate in us a fresh remembrance and a fresh confession of these things. Quoting Ryle again, this time at length, but he makes a particular application to the churchgoer of his day. Let it never surprise us to find the same variety of, of opinions about Christ and his gospel in our own times. God's truth disturbs the spiritual laziness of men. It obliges them to think. It makes them begin to talk and reason and speculate and invent theories to account for its spread in some quarters and its rejection in others. Thousands in every age of the church spend their lives in this way and never come to the point of drawing near to God. They satisfy themselves with a miserable round of gossip about this preacher's sermons or that writer's opinions. They think this man goes too far and that man doesn't go far enough. Some doctrines they approve and others they disapprove. Some teachers they call sound and others they call unsound. They cannot quite make up their own minds what is true or what is right. Years roll on after years and find them in the same state, talking, criticizing, fault-finding, speculating, but never getting any further, hovering like the moth round religion, but never settling down like the bee to feed on its treasures. They never boldly lay hold of Christ. They never set themselves heartily to the great business of serving God. They never take up the cross and become thorough Christians. And at last, after all their talking, they die in their sins, unprepared to meet God. Sobering words, brethren. May God add his blessing and his searching to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we would uh, hear, oh, give us ears to hear, and we would see, oh, give us eyes to see, Jesus Christ for all he is and all his glory. Oh, Lord God, let us not nibble around the edges. Let us embrace him by faith. Let us live to his glory. Those who know and profess him, those who've made the good confession, let us be quickened in our way. And those who know you not, Lord God, this day, Oh, may it be a day of salvation. May we beat on our breasts and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and go down to our house justified, all by your grace, all for your glory and honor. We ask it all in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.